When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're heading to Kansas to talk pheasant and quail hunting with Brad Stefanoni. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 132. Project Up and Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. And by CZ USA, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight and Wing Shooter Elite over and unders. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com to learn more. And by Electronic Shooters Protection. Custom molded, custom fit hearing protection that lets you hear what you want to hear in the field, blocks out everything that you don't. Learn more and get yourself a pair at ESPAmerica.com. And by Sage and Breaker, 
makers of gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible, and they are proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled protection, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Learn more by heading to dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Nick G. Nick's been listening to the podcast, sent us some feedback on a recent episode, which we very much appreciate. Project Up the T-shirt headed Nick's way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one announcement for everybody today. A regular partner of ours on the podcast, Gumleaf Boots, gumleafusa.com. They're doing a limited time sale. They're moving their inventory from one warehouse to another. But before they move everything, they're going to run a sale through the month of February where you, the listener, can save 25% on any pair of boots at gumleafusa.com. All you have to do is use the promo code HARTLY, which is the name of my recovering English setter, H-A-R-T-L-E-Y, that's Hartley, promo code to save 25% on any pair of boots from gumleafusa.com. Check that out while supplies last for the month of February, promo code Hartley at gumleafusa.com. All right, on this episode of the Project Upland Podcast, we are headed to Kansas to speak with Brad Stefanoni. He is an upland bird hunter, a biologist, a frequent contributor to projectupland.com, and he and I chatted about a whole bunch of things Kansas-related, including pheasant hunting, quail hunting, prairie chicken hunting. We talked about his family farm, some of the habitat work he's been doing there. We mix in a little shotguns and some digital scouting. I enjoyed talking to Brad, and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Brad Stefanoni. And I'm ready to go. How about you, Brad? I'm ready to go when you are. <laughs> Good deal, man. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Happy Friday. Uh, happy Friday to you, and thanks <laughs> thanks for the invitation. It's uh, You have esteemed colleagues, so I have uh, big shoes to fill. I don't know. Is your schedule and work like mine right now, where Fridays don't quite feel like they used to, just working from home and not being in the office? You know, uh, it's funny you mention that. Yes, is the short answer. It's <laughs> everything. You know, you keep saying, "Well, this is the new normal," and then, right. you know, the next day you say, "Well, well, this is the new normal." And I, I don't, I don't know to what to attribute that, but it, yeah, it's just a little weird. Yeah, it definitely is, and I don't know the time of the year and hunting seasons are shutting down, and ah, we'll talk all about that today. But Brad, why don't you start by just uh, generally put us on the map and tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the things that you do and you can work in some of your contributions to Project Upland. Sure. Uh, name's Brad Stefanoni. I live in the extreme southeastern corner of uh, Kansas in a town called Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up down here in southeast Kansas. Uh, I uh, do a little bit of everything, probably too much, uh, a, little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of bird hunting, a little duck hunting. Uh, we do a little trout fishing over in the Ozarks, which is just next door in Missouri. Cool. Uh, tie flies, 
uh, hike, bike, all that stuff in the outdoors with uh, my family and my, my pooch. And you're, uh, I would say, a regular contributor to ProjectUpland.com, also the magazine too, right? Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay. I, I, okay. I, matter of fact, I just submitted a, an article uh, uh, to the magazine a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and I'm working on finishing one right now for Hunting Dog Confidential. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, it's been uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to to work with all you guys at Project Upland and contribute what tiny little bit of knowledge I may have, but uh, hopefully it'll help somebody. Well, as you know from probably following along with Project Upland, you know, over the past however many years, we have lots of contributors that do, you know, a little bit here and there, and I think that's kind of been it's sort of been one of the things that we've focused on from the very start is getting a wide, wide array of people to contribute and submit things. And that's kind of built Project Upland into what it is today. So Absolutely. you're part of that, Brad. Yeah, well, hey, thank you. I, I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of it. It's, it's really neat, uh, you know, from, from my perspective. I, I completely agree with you. You know, it's just being able to have the diversity and in articles and content and, and yeah folks that that contribute it's uh, it's a wealth of of information for a little bit of everything so no spoilers but your the piece you're working on potentially for hunting dog confidential what's the theme uh the, the theme is uh, i uh, was talking with uh, jennifer the editor and yep. we um i mentioned to her just kind of in passing while i i kept this journal when I was training my uh, Labrador. My uh, she, I have a six-year-old uh, black lab female. And uh, in typical Brad fashion, I, I overdid it. I kept way too many notes and way too much journaling. And <laughs> and uh, I shared with her, I said, you know, maybe that would be some, maybe that would be something to contribute to, uh, you know, to our, our readers of, hey, n- not necessarily how to keep a journal, but kind of what that did for me in 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 uh you know being a gun dog trainer uh, amateur gun dog trainer and uh kind of how that impacted not only my dog but uh, but me and and my family obviously yeah so you've piqued my interest now i'm i'm curious was the journal essentially kind of a training slash hunting journal kind of just kind of a log of the dog's development and all the sorts of things you were doing Yes and no. It, it was okay. more of a. It, it was definitely more of a training journal. Uh, okay. And uh, so I, originally, I started keeping it just just to kind of keep track of okay, what am I doing? What what keep my plan, my training plan going, and and you know see things that maybe I could look back a, a week and see okay, well I had trouble with or she had trouble with this. Maybe we need to work more on this. And uh, it it kind of evolved into this thing i don't even know what you call it but i kept a lot of notes and uh it uh it, it was it was really handy to be able to go back and say oh okay well we worked on that a month ago and now you know she she's got that uh, or hey we worked on that a month ago and she still doesn't have that yeah brad you're failing her you know kind of one of those things so uh it was extremely helpful to me and i was able to use it when i reached out to other peers that were dog trainers and and said hey i'm kind of struggling with this or whatever and they'd say okay well what have you done well i could easily kind of, i could easily go back and and say yep. okay well here's what i did and when i did it and the time of day i did it good grief oh that's awesome that's something that i have not done i have i have a desire to 
to take more notes and journal about things. And I, I've seen what it can do for you. Like in the examples that you're bringing up where you can actually refer back to something, you know, date, time, place. I, I do that with certain things, but of course I always, I want to do it with more, but as you all know, there's just, you know, you can only fit so many things in or you only commit yourself to so many things, but no, that that's a great thing to have and give you the context as you're reflecting back. I, I know in the moment, a lot of a lot of times we think, well, we'll remember this, but it's you never every, do. Every, no, you never do, and everything yeah. blurs together. Imagine maybe some of that note taking and some of that tendency has come from your time as a biologist and spending time in the field. A- absolutely, I mean that that's a huge a huge part of that. And uh, full disclosure, the the journaling part was uh, that, that I have to credit my wife. Uh, my wife's been a a journalist and writer for. 25 plus years and uh you know she does that for a living so a little bit of osmosis rubbed off on me and and as we were talking with our our pup you know six or seven years ago uh we kind of talked about that and she said yeah that'd be that would be a great way to to yes document it but also uh, use it as a training tool so uh so kudos to my my bride for for encouraging me to do that yeah that's great well let's Rewind a little bit, Brad, because I want to find out a little bit more about how your path kind of led you into the uplands and, and your time as a biologist. So it sounded like you grew up in that area, that part of Kansas, were outdoors a part of your life from very early on? Uh, yeah, it was uh, probably the biggest part of my life. I <laughs> I, uh, I was looking back now, I know how extremely fortunate uh, I was. Of course, you, yeah. know, you never know at the time, but uh, I grew up uh, in the, the edge of a tiny little town, and uh, my my family had about 60 acres uh, behind my house, um, out back, so to speak, and uh, it was a little bit of everything. In, in our neck of the woods, uh, this was coal mining country, so we had a lot of uh, unreclaimed strip mines, uh, so part of the Part of that 60 acres was unreclaimed strip mines, which was basically a, a, a pretty mature forest. Um, and okay. then part of it was uh, some uplands. Uh, there was uh, some hay meadows, uh, some plum thickets, so a little bit of everything. And and I kind of grew up, you know, I'd come home from school when I was a kid and grab my little single shot 410 shotgun and my overweight black Labrador and we'd wander around, <laughs> <laughs> wander around out back and, and, uh, it, it was uh, it was pretty pretty ideal for a for a kid that was in the outdoors. Yeah. We had ponds and you you could fish and hunt and there was never a lack of cottontails or or bob whites uh, within those sixty acres. And and you know looking back now as uh, as I gain in age, um, I'm constantly telling my my two boys the same thing. I said you know I, I took it for granted then I could walk out my back door and within fifteen minutes I'd had a pretty good idea where there were a couple of coveys of quail and cottontails or whatever. And, and, uh, it's, it's certainly not the case, uh, now in, in my neck of the woods, but, uh, yeah, yeah it was, it was, uh, pretty idyllic. Yeah. That certainly sounds like paradise, little playground for a, for a young kid. That's, that's one of the things you read about, you know, guys, right. T- walking to the school bus with their shotgun or, you, you know, getting off the school bus and, running inside for a minute, grabbing the shotgun and right out the back door. That's, that's definitely not the norm today. Well, you're, you're exactly right. And and I was even compounded even more. I was more fortunate because my, my grandparents lived literally next door 
cool. And uh, uh, at a time for a time when I was growing up, my my great grandparents lived just down the road, and uh, my grandfather and great grandfather and my dad were big big bird hunters, quail hunters at that time, and and uh, there was uh, always a uh, a German short hair pointer around and you know my I I don't ever remember a time me asking my grandpa hey can we you know can we go hunt I, I don't think he ever told me no he maybe he may have but I I don't ever think so so sure. uh, I now I know how extremely fortunate uh, I was as a kid growing up in in that kind of a situation but uh, you, you don't think about it at the time you take it for take it for granted right so naturally you had an interest in the natural world, the outdoors from a very early stage that I imagine played a pretty strong influence as to what you ultimately pursued in your profession and becoming a biologist. Absolutely. I, I know one of the things, speaking to my grandfather, we would go out to hunt and, and you know, we'd, we'd find a covey of quail. And I, I probably asked way too many questions as a kid, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I always wanted to know, okay, well, well why are they here? Why did they go there and and this and then as I got a little bit older, uh, I dabbled uh, as much as a twelve year old kid can dabble in creating a little mini food plot for quail, which I know didn't work, but uh, it made me feel better. And uh, so as I got a little bit older, you start thinking about you know people start asking, well, what are you going to do for a you know for a living and and yep. uh, you know you, everybody gets to that point where well you don't know and. And I remember I was watching television, and I there was a show from Missouri Department of Conservation, I think, and they interviewed a guy that, and it, it had the title down below, and it said uh, District Wildlife Manager, and I thought, what in the heck is that? Uh, so I, <laughs> you know, at that at that time there was no googling around, but yep. uh, I asked my uh, high school guidance counselor and a few folks, and the more I dug into it, I realized that hey. You know, some people actually make a job doing this. Uh, and uh, so that's, long story short, that's kind of how I got into the, the biological world. Yeah. It was more of an exploration and trying to answer my jillion questions more than anything. Yeah. Do you, going back to some of the early days before we leave that, do you recall, do you recall shooting your first quail? Any, like, is there any like highlight moments that kind of still stick with you today? I'm sure they're, you know, they're countless, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I remember exactly where I shot my first quail and, and I remember where Love I miss, missed my first quail. <laughs> but uh, we there was a, a little plum thicket behind our house and there was always a covey of birds somewhere around it. And I coerced my grandfather into going out one afternoon. It was on a Saturday or Sunday or something. And uh, the, we got out there and dog pointed a covey of birds and Birds got up, and I had a little single shot 410, and I was still young enough that I really didn't know anything. And uh, Covey gets up, and I watch my grandpa dust two birds on the Covey rise, and I was just in awe, you know. And uh, birds fly off, and and he said, well, how many did you get? And I said, well, I, I didn't even raise my shotgun. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I was more just watching. And uh, so he said, well, well, we'll go over here. I bet we can find a single. And and uh, sure enough, we did. Walked over, and and uh, dog found the single, and it got up, took off, flew straight away, the easiest shot in the world. And of course, I promptly missed it. And <laughs> we went a little bit further and found another one. And and uh, I don't know how, but uh, the little four ten went off, and bird fell, and still didn't know what the heck to do. But it was uh, it was yeah. pretty cool to to be able to experience that with uh, you know with my grandpa and and. Uh, 
Yeah, I remember that uh, vividly. I probably remember the the one I missed more than anything, but uh, you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think most of us probably have a lot more misses than hits, anyways. <laughs> Good grief! I know I do. <laughs> Uh, that's really cool. So dog, I mean, dogs were a part of it. That that short hairs, and now you have you got a lab today. At, is, that's you obviously do some waterfowl hunting, do a little bit of everything. So lab's kind of the dog for you. You know, it is. Uh, there was a uh, it's kind of a, a weird progression in my my uh, maturity as a bird hunter. I uh, you know was in high school, got into college, and still bird yeah. hunted a little bit, but but really kind of shifted to duck hunting a little bit more. So I I okay. kind of gravitated to. The Labradors and and uh, just have had labs ever since. Um, and you know, we, we we do some duck hunting out on our farm, and and uh, I I take her, you know, bird hunting, pheasant hunting, and and uh, she she's a great pheasant hunter. It's I had nothing to do with that. I will be the first to tell you. It's she's just naturally a pretty good pheasant hunter. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, I'm kind of into Labradors now. Um, black sheep of the family went away from the, the, the pointing dogs to the retrievers. But, uh, but we had, had a, uh, one of my earlier labs when my grandfather was still alive and he got pretty attached to, to that lab. So I think, I think maybe I slowly converted him over to retrievers, but, uh, I don't cool. know. So when it comes to upland hunting today for you, are you primarily a Kansas hunter? Do you, are you doing out, out of state trips as well? Um, you know, honestly, uh, it's primarily in Kansas. Okay. Uh, we're, we're pretty fortunate where, you know, in Kansas, we have a lot of opportunities. So, yeah. uh, uh, I did, I did this year, ironically, I had a trip scheduled with a good friend of mine to, uh, Northwestern Wisconsin to go rough grouse hunting for the first time, but uh, COVID kind of got in the way with that. So we had to postpone that till hopefully this year. Um, that's that's a, been a bucket list of mine for years, and I know that's it's old hat for you, Nick. But I'm guessing did, I'm guessing you would have maybe told me about that trip. I guess I forgot about that. that yeah, you I think come I think we did kind of text or email back and forth, uh, okay. and uh, yeah, we were going to go last October, and okay, just didn't happen. But hey, that that's life. So uh, we're looking yeah. forward to making that happen uh, in the future, and I'm looking forward to be embarrassed by some flushing rough grouse that I'll miss and <laughs> all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would be it would be great for you to come up and see it for sure. You have to for sure keep me posted on on the trip logistics this year. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We're keeping our fingers crossed that it, uh, it actually happens. So. Good deal. We go back to Kansas upland hunting. The two things that come to my mind are pheasant and bobwhite quail. But you've got chickens. Do you have sharp-tailed grouse there. We don't have sharp tails, you okay. know, in in history of Kansas. At one time, there were sh- uh, sharpies in Kansas, but sure. but uh, not anymore. But we do have, like you said, we do have a uh, pretty good pheasant population uh, in spots, pretty good bob white population, and uh, pretty good stronghold still of prairie chickens. So, okay, um, yeah, we're we're extremely fortunate when it comes to the uplands. With respect to the quail, just because you mentioned them hunting them mm-hmm. when you were younger, out the back door. And I know that the quail story is, I was actually doing some reading the other day. This is an article from 2015 about how, you know, certainly quail hunting has a decline from what most quail hunters would refer to as the golden years. But I don't know where exactly we're at today, but what have you seen just being a lifelong Kansas resident quail hunter? Have you seen a dramatic decline? Have you seen some kind of stabilization? What is the quail population feel like to you just and your observations well that's a that's a great question it's it's one that's been 
that I've pondered quite a bit. Um, yeah. The short answer is is we've we've really experienced a decline. Yeah. Uh, but I'll I'll you know put a caveat on that. It, it's it's only in certain areas, uh, and you know our our area here in southeastern Kansas is a great example. It, it you know it used to be the 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 place where people went if somebody wanted to go you know bob white hunting this was one of the top few places that they that they went southeastern and then eastern kansas and it seems to me from everything that i read now that that the the population has kind of shifted a little bit further west you know out into the to the flint hills south central kansas you know north central kansas there seem to be reports of of a lot better populations of bob whites in those areas than than we do here and you know the bob whites are so cyclic uh you know you can have one good spring and a good summer and the population just explodes um and then conversely you can have a you know a a real wet spring or a real dry summer or both like we had last year and the population just tanks so um you know there's a lot of those intangible things that that we you know, that we don't control and, and a lot of those limiting factors that we just don't control. And there's not a whole lot that if I could predict the weather, you know, I'd probably be doing something else for a living, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's challenging. But now the short answer to your question is, yeah, we've, we've seen a, a pretty good uh, decline at least recently in, in Bob White's. And, okay. but and now, as soon as I say that, uh, you know, I drive over and back and forth to my farm and I see a lot of, uh, I see a lot of things that, in terms of habitat projects, small and medium and large that, that folks are doing that, that are, um, that I think are making a dent in that, that are, that are helping in that. So, uh, it, it, every little bit counts and, and, uh, you just hope that, uh, you know, with those little kind of pieces to the puzzle that it, it goes back together. I don't think we'll ever get back to, uh, you know, what, I don't know what the glory days were, but I've, right. I've heard stories about those from my dad and, and he yep. used to hear those from my grandfather and, I don't think we'll ever get back to that, but I think there's probably a, a sweet spot in the in the middle that uh, you know through some good habitat work and and some some folks that that we can get there. That's my hope, anyway. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've been like I said, I was reading an article on quail. I've I've of course never chased bobwhite quail. I certainly hope to, and that's one of the things on my list. But I listened to a podcast recently on the South Carolina Quail Initiative with couple guys that I had had on here previously, um, Michael Hook and Mark Coleman. And mm-hmm. it, it just, it sounds to me, and I, re- I recall actually talking to a couple of Missouri quail guys on this podcast within the last couple of years. And I asked them about, you know, there's this thing with upland birds where we refer to the golden years. Mm-hmm. It, it's a certain time period, but was that really, was that a boom, you know, was, right. were, were the golden years really a boom and not really a sustainable norm? And that's what you're of course getting at when you're talking about finding that sweet spot where we've got sustainable populations that have large landscapes that they can live on and propagate and continue, but they're, they're huntable and they're not in danger of being isolated or losing connectivity to other habitats. Right, right. Yeah, you're exactly right. It was probably I'm assuming that was Kyle and Frank. Yes, it was yes, Kyle and Frank. Yep. yep. Um that was uh, that was an, a great podcast and the the those two guys are doing some amazing work on Bob they are. Yeah. that, that uh, is really kind of changing the it's shifting the paradigm in in what folks are are thinking and planning in terms of, you know, management and habitat and and all those factors that go into that. It's really interesting. Yeah, and that and I guess that was one of the points that I wanted to make is 
you know, most of us that probably are listening to this podcast or on this podcast, are, we spend an above average time thinking about upland game birds. So we, right. I come across, I come across more of these conversations than the average person. But it, it, it feels to me like across the upland game bird world, you know, a lot of times we, we really have a good understanding because of the biological research and everything that's been done over the past we have a good understanding of what the birds need it's just a matter of how do we get it back on the landscape working right. within all of the other forces whether it's agriculture or e- economics i mean all of those things play a role in the impact of the landscape and but it, it feels to me like the quail conversation is certainly at a point where a lot of folks are realizing the value in quail they want them on the landscape and they can see how to find the blend between agriculture, economics, and birds. And it's more about getting that message out and getting people to put the habitat on the landscape. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of it, you know, in my opinion, too, is, is kind of figuring out how to adjust expectations. Uh, mm-hmm. And I am the world's worst. You know, we, we have an 80-acre farm, and we've done a lot of habitat work there. And, and, and you know, I want, you know, I, I want five or six cubbies on that 80 acres and, and that's not realistic based on my habitat and where I'm at. And, um, but, uh, so I, I, I think being able to just kind of adjust those expectations too is, is, uh, uh is part of that. Let's talk about the farm a little bit. You, 80 acre farm. How did that come to be? Is that something that you had a goal you went and sought it out or was it a family farm? How did you acquire that? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. It was uh, that the farm has been in my wife's family for for years and years. It was her grandfather's uh, part of his farm. Um, And uh, gosh, up until seven or eight years ago, uh, it was just basically we just cash rented it to a a local uh, agricultural producer and, and they did the typical row cropping on it, rotation, you know, uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, etc. here in southeast Kansas. And and uh, that that's pretty much it. It was pretty much fence to fence, you know, row cropped. And, okay. and uh, I honestly don't know. One day I was just kind of sitting, sitting in the house and, and uh, looking at some, some maps and, and I kind of got to thinking, what can we do over there, you know, and, 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 and you know, with my background as a biologist, I, I, you know, part of that was, was selfish. I, I, I kind of, not really selfish, but I started thinking, okay, well, what can I do to, to make a difference? I, I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to be one of those, you know, folks that just, you know, says, oh, well, the, the quail are going and we can't do anything about it. Okay. Right. Well, what can I do uh, to positively impact that given the, you know, the knowledge and the resources that I have and, and, Again, working with the within the parameters that we have, it's it's small. It's eighty acres, and and uh, the challenge that I have is uh, talk about limiting factors. The biggest limiting factor I have is is it's a complete island. It's surrounded by um, agricultural fields, and and uh, so you know the the opportunities for especially Bob Whites to opportunities for them to ingress into the area. You know, they pretty much walk wherever they go. They're they're not like pheasants or prairie chickens. The, the opportunities for them to come into the area is pretty limited because they just don't have any corridors to get there. So I, I know I'm going to be limited and, and, uh, on what we can do, but, um, we're, we're trying the very best we can. I tell folks all the time, we are trying to squeeze every last single drop of positive habitat that we can out of 80 acres. Uh, and it's a, it's a continual work in progress. We'll, we'll, we'll never get there. We'll never be, completely satisfied uh, i won't anyway uh, right. but uh 
but I like to think that, hey, you know, we're, we're doing our little part to, to hopefully make an impact. And not just, you know, Bob White's. And we, have, we, right. built, a, we built a wetland there. And it's not okay. just the, it's not just for, uh, you know, going over to try to shoot something. Uh, the, the Those non-game benefits and the wildlife that we see over there. I mean, every time we go, we see bald eagles. We see northern oh, wow. ha- harriers flying around the prairie. We see in the springtime, there's oodles and oodles oodles of uh, frogs and and toads and all kinds of reptiles and amphibians and and uh, songbirds and everything else so uh so we're we're, we're having an impact uh, it's just it's just me i'm, I'm never satisfied so so we're, yeah we're always trying to do something more well I, i'm curious about maybe some of the steps you've taken just trying to visualize this and so you, you built a wetland. Were there was there anything on the eighty acres? I mean, did you have any tree rows? Did you have any? Did you have any pieces of cover at all that you could work with, or have you had to go about putting putting cover in? Basically, <laughs> um, uh, that's the funny thing. Uh, on those eighty acres, uh, when we first started, and I have some photos, uh, it was pretty much a bare dirt field. Wow. With, with the exception, uh, there was an old grassed waterway that hadn't okay. been it hadn't been maintained, so it had grown up in some shrubs. Uh, which was good, um, and then there was a, a little corner. There was a uh, a little plum thicket that had kind of grown up, mainly because it was on the corner and the the plow couldn't reach it. Okay. Uh, so there was a tiny little piece of cover here, a tiny little piece of cover here, and then on the uh, the east end of it, along the whole eastern border, is a uh, uh, a tree row of Osage orange. Uh, you know, in this country we call it hedgerows. Um, Okay. And uh, the challenge with that, though, is is they're, they're trees. They're not shrubs. They're they're not early successional by any means. They're they're mature. So so that's one of the challenges that we have is trying to 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 do what we can within that hedgerow to kind of bump that succession back and and try to create those you know more of those early successional stages okay. that yep. that uh, Bob White's like especially. Talk to me about the balance in is there still agriculture i mean are you trying to make this now where it's a wildlife but also an agricultural property or is the ag completely gone talk to me about that aspect yeah it's a that's a great point i'm glad you mentioned it uh the the agricultural production is is pretty much completely gone so when we started this uh you know no our family, we did not have the the financial resources to just go and wave a magic wand and say, "Okay, we want to do this, 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 and sure. this," and, and just do it. So, I had to to work with uh, a whole lot of folks to <clears throat> excuse me to make that happen. You know, NRCS, the USDA, um, Kansas Wildlife and Parks, uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, Ducks Unlimited, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I- any possible resource that I knew of. Um, I, I reached out to, and, and uh, so what we were able to do, uh, to make a long story short, is through conservation reserve program practices. There's three or four different practices we do there, uh, and uh, a couple of other things. We were able to not only get the the, the initial work done, especially for the wetland, the dirt work, yep. uh, and then the the seeding for the upland areas, uh, but then we uh, we receive a you know an annual rental payment on the CR CRP that basically turned it into a wash. So what we were collecting in terms of our cash rent and now what we collect in terms of CRP is, is pretty much a, a wash. Uh, wow. And we're not really trying to make any money off of it. Uh, the yep. only thing that we try to do is just uh, collect enough off the CRP to, you know, to pay the, the property taxes and, uh, you know, do a little bit of 
habitat work or repairs where we can. And, and, uh, so that's kind of the, the, the basis for, for how we made those decisions, but there is no way in the world that, that we could have done what we've done without all of those partners that I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just wouldn't have happened. There's, it, it wouldn't have happened. It would have still be, there's, there'd be a, a you know, cornrows in it right now. So uh, yeah. <clears throat> we're very, very fortunate to have those opportunities. Yeah. It's amazing that, yeah, that those opportunities do exist for folks that, you know, value habitat, want to put that on the landscape. And I, I know that's what a lot of the agencies specialize, you know, the Pheasants Forever, the Quill Forever, right. Grouse Society, they do it up here with through NRCS a lot of the times, helping landowners take advantage of those programs and opportunities that they have to impact habitat, which is, of course, it's obvious in our conversation, like you you really value that. And so it's it's been made possible for you, which is really cool. Absolutely. You know, there, there, there's always that part of you, or there, at least there is of me when we first started down this path, uh, you know, there, there was a little bit of doubt. I thought, okay, well, if you build it, will they come? Sure. You know, one of those things. And, and, uh, the first fall after we had our, our wetland finished, um, I had a friend of mine that lives not too far from there who kind of keeps an eye on the place for me. And, uh, he called me one morning and said, have you been by your wetland lately? And I said, well, no. And he said, you need to go by this morning. And, uh, I did. And there were, I don't know, five or 600 ducks on that wetland. Wow. I almost couldn't believe it. And then as the upland habitat started coming up, my uh, youngest son and I were, we were duck hunting one afternoon and, and started to picked up all of our decoys and we're walking out and our dog was wandering around in front of us. And, uh, big covey of, uh, Bob White's took off and, and kind of flew over to the hedgerow and my youngest son says, gosh, dad, what were those? And then I felt bad because he, he, did, you know, he didn't grow up like I did. Right. Um, but, uh, that was the first time we'd, we'd seen Bob White's on the, the area. And, uh, so then uh, that, that kind of assuaged my, uh, doubt a little bit to, uh, think, okay, well, well, we must be doing something right. So, uh, so that was, that was uh, kind of a nice affirmation of, okay, yeah, you're, you're doing something right. You're, you're creating the right kind of habitat. And, uh, and, and now you, you know, we were seeing the the fruits of our labor, so to speak. Absolutely, man. I mean, that's, that's the living, breathing proof right there. Is it safe to say that, I mean, the way you've described it, edge to edge farming, there was zero Bob White quail on this place before. It, if there were, um, it was just maybe some kind of a a transient covey or or something. Uh, I, I, it's hard to say, but I, I doubt that there were. Yeah. So where where are we today now? You've you've seen quail, you've seen duck. Are there pheasants on the properties? You've got heavy grasses in place. Unfortunately, uh, we are not in the part of the country uh, that uh, we don't have any pheasants in South really? Eastern. We don't. Okay. Um, I say unfortunately uh, because it'd be great, uh, but it's probably fortunate because I would probably be. Uh, broke, I'd have no vacation days, and, you know, an absentee father and all that kind of stuff because they're, I love, I love chasing pheasants, but, yeah. um, but yeah, um, pretty much East, the, the Flint Hills in Kansas, uh, is kind of the barrier, okay. um, East of, East of the Flint Hills every now and then folks might see one, but not very often. Okay. So I wish we did. Yeah. Well, that's. Man, I, I ask you the questions about the farm and stuff because it's certainly a goal of mine to have have a place like that someday that 
you know, again, I don't have necessarily big dreams of having some sort of secluded hunting property or anything, but it's more that that landscape that you can kind of tinker with with the help of some professionals and and doing the right things and just kind of taking ownership of a little piece of wildlife habitat. I I hope to be able to do that someday. Absolutely. Well, I hope you do too. It's uh, it, it's extremely rewarding, uh, and it, it's even more rewarding to be able to you know, to share that with, uh, you know, with your family and, and with folks like you and, and, uh, you know, the folks that read project Upland and other things. And, yeah. and, uh, because without being able to share it, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what it means, but, uh, it's yeah. nice to be able to, to kind of share that with everyone. So, well, you would value it, but I know the way you're thinking when somebody else sees it and you can see how that they begin to value it. I mean, that's, that doubles down Absolutely. From, your, from your perspective. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It makes you makes you feel good about uh, that you're you're doing something positive. Yeah, that's really cool. So when it comes to upland season, you mentioned you love to chase pheasants, and you would do it more if you could if they were out your back door. How does the upland season shake out for you? Do you find yourself? Do you hunt mostly quail, mostly pheasants, a little bit of everything? How does the upland season look for you? Yeah, um, you know, we'll typically take a, a trip or two a, a year uh, out to South Central Kansas to chase pheasants. I have okay. have a couple of friends that uh, that live out there that we uh, we hunt with, and and uh, so we'll do that once or twice a year. And and uh, we don't we don't harvest uh, a whole lot of birds, but it sure is uh, nice to get out and and see some different ground and, and yeah. see some of the beautiful landscapes out there. And then we'll we'll hunt some bob whites around here. Uh, you know, the last couple of years has been pretty challenging, to be honest with you, uh, okay. as far as hunting goes for bob whites. Um, but uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, you, you go wander around in the uplands in southeast Kansas for a morning, even if you don't see a darn thing. You know, that's really not a bad way to spend <laughs> the morning. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's yeah. let's be honest here. So, but yeah, that's that's kind of what we'll do and. You know, uh, one of the things that, that, at least in the last couple of years, that, that I'm trying to, to get back into doing more of is is uh, going after some prairie chickens here in okay. Kansas. I, we did that a lot when I was in high school and college, and I had some friends that, that we went with. And, you know, it, life evolves, and, and you kind of move away from some things and toward others, and... and uh, but it's definitely something that's on my uh, on my list to to get in the field more to try to scope out some some prairie chickens. They're really really neat birds. Yep, another one another one that I have. I don't think I've ever you know I was in South Dakota this year prairie chickens in the area, but I don't think mm-hmm. we flushed any. So I don't know that I've ever ever been in the vicinity of putting a bird up. I would I'd love to do that as well. Yeah, they're they're great birds. Beautiful. So I was cruising through some of the articles you had written on projectupland.com, and I, I made a couple of notes because there was a few things that I wanted to talk to you about. One of them was sure. was digital scouting, something that I think I've talked about it on this podcast, and I've interviewed some folks, but it, it typically takes on a very Northwoods rough grouse feel when we're talking digital scouting here. So I wanted to get your perspective, and really, I know when I'm taking some of my out-of-state trips that I have done in the past few years, when I'm going out to say the Dakotas and I'm looking at a satellite map, <laughs> I'm out of my element to begin with. <laughs> right. But it seems to me like there's just so much less to look at because you can't see you can't see the the really 
I know that it has something to do with just me not understanding the nuance of that habitat and spending enough time on the ground. You know, there's something about when you spend enough time in the woods and then you look at the same piece of cover on satellite imagery, you can put yourself on the ground in your mind and then you see the imagery and then you start to connect all these dots and you can see those patterns elsewhere. So I'm guessing you have a similar thing going on where you hunt. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the things you look for when you are digital scouting for upland hunting in Kansas. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one of them uh, was as recent as this morning, as a matter of fact. I'm, I'm going to you were looking at maps this morning, Brad. I, uh, yeah, just don't tell my boss. But uh, <laughs> okay. I, I was, um, I was uh, gonna. I'm actually gonna try to sneak out this afternoon to try to sneak one last Bob White and maybe All even good a, for you. a prairie chicken hunt in this afternoon. <laughs> so, uh, but I was looking this morning, and you know, one of the things that that I was really looking at because uh, one of the, the the area that I'm gonna probably head to is. Uh, uh, an area that uh, there there very well may be some prairie chickens on, so I was kind of looking for that topography. Okay, you know, looking for those little, you know, topography in Kansas is a heck of a lot different than topography in Montana and Colorado. Sure. I, I get that, but kind of still there. It's it is yeah, and trying to looking for those little nuances. Uh, you know, typically where 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 we see prairie chickens, especially this time of year in the late season, they'll be they'll be around uh, a little. A little knoll, a little hill, yep. something with some higher elevation, kind of like sharp tails. They yep. they want it. They want to, you know, they want to see you coming from a half a mile away so they can flush and just make you mad, you know. Yep. But, uh, so that's kind of what uh, what I was looking for there, and, and trying to narrow down, you know, the area that I'm probably going to go to today is, gosh, I don't know, two or three thousand acres. So uh, being able to to use some digital scouting to narrow that down into maybe a couple of hundred acres. Uh, to to start definitely helps and um, then on the the other side of that uh, I was a couple of weeks ago I was looking at an area that uh, there's a walk-in hunting area that that might be good for bob whites around uh, not too far from where I live and what the one thing I was looking for there is uh, again I was kind of looking for topography but I was really looking more for for kind of the intersection of of all of those habitat needs you know where where is the where's the potential food at where's the escape cover you know, where's the, the, the tall grass, you know, kind of next to it. And, uh, it's when you get a bird's eye view, you can just kind of me anyway, I, I just kind of get a different perspective on that. And I think some of it goes back to my early, my early work in the industry as a biologist, uh, I worked for an engineering company and we did a lot of biological surveys all across the U S and, uh, you know, back then there was no Onyx, there was no Google maps and yep. I'm aging myself here. So bear with me. <laughs> You mean there was a time where there was no OnX and no Google? <laughs> Evidently, I, you know, there, there was. I, I try to explain that to my boys all the time, but I don't think they believe me. But, but uh, you know, we used at that time a lot of uh, the USGS topo maps. And, oh, uh, sure. Yep. You know, for the type of work that we were doing, it was... That was the gold standard, pretty it much, was. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we somebody somebody was the map carrier in the group, and everybody carried all the maps, you know, and yeah. we... Uh, uh, we use those those topo maps to to do just about everything, you know, to figure out where we wanted to set our lines line transects for surveys, you know, the the best place to to do biological surveys for this or for that or soil and vegetation surveys. So, you know, kind of by default, at least in my case, I I, I got kind of familiar with 
the, the, the shorthand of looking at those maps. And so I've kind of tried to transfer uh, whatever skills I had with that over to the digital world. And uh, a lot of those transfer pretty well. I mean, uh, contour lines are contour lines, whether they're on your laptop or, or on a, you know, a papered USGS map. So, uh, yep. so just being able to kind of look at those and, and try to, I'm, I'm always just kind of trying to find the little nuances, uh, in the terrain where, uh, where you can at least maybe, maybe cheat a little bit and, and save yourself a little bit of boot leather. Um, sure. But, uh, yep. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but, uh, you know how that goes. Yeah. That's the, that's the on the ground experimentation. You never know how it's going to actually play out, but right. the, yeah, the topography thing, that's something that I, it's probably one of my favorite aspects of starting to do some of my western prairie hunts it, and like the first year i went out there i was kind of wandering around and i was with some other folks that i mean you know how that goes i was with mm-hmm. other people that had done it so you're kind of observing or at least i tried to observe and sure pay attention to what we were doing and eventually um from just hunting with other people i've realized the value of paying attention to the topography and working the terrain in a certain way and i just i really like that because even in the woods i i like to hunt covers a certain way i like to work objectives and it's just for whatever reason that's the way my mind works so sure i love finding that subtle nuance in the topography and in the grasslands when you're chasing sharp tails or it sounds like chickens in your case um that's that's one of the most thrilling things when when that all comes together when you plan your route and you kind of work the terrain and the wind and it all comes together and birds are in the air i mean that's that's why we do it, it absolutely yeah you, you hit the nail right on the head there I think I was reading something the other day. I don't know if it was your article or not, but just again, when it comes to digital scouting, you know, we feel the need to say, you know, nothing replaces boots on the ground, which I think I think is is certainly true, but you have to tell me if you said this or if I read it somewhere else. Where digital scouting really comes in handy is eliminating a lot of the time that you could spend wasted, you know, that could be wasted in unproductive areas. You can, you can really centralize your search areas and focus in, and you can rule out a lot of stuff that's probably not worth your time. Cause we're all trying to maximize our time in the uplands as we're all busy. And, you know, we only get so many days a year out there. Absolutely. Yeah. That in one of my articles, that was one of the things that, okay. that I kind of touched on just a little bit. Uh, and, and I'm exactly like you. I mean, you, you want to be able to use that digital scouting to, to, you know, at least if nothing else, eliminate some areas where, you know, there, there's probably not going to be birds here because they don't have all their habitat requirements. You right. Know? Um, so, and there's always going to be those anomalies where, For sure. where you know, you'll yep. prove yourself wrong, so to speak. But, um, but, uh, I know one area that I was looking at, there was this huge piece of linear cover and, uh, in, in the perfect world, there would probably be a covey of Bob Whites in there. But the more I looked at it, that was it. It was kind of this little peninsula. There was nothing around it that, that would host any Bob Whites. And as much as I wanted to wander around there, I kind of took it off the table because, I thought, you know, there's some other areas nearby that are probably going to have a little bit better of a chance um, just because they do have some more of those things next to them. And, uh, uh, and of course, you you know, you never know and they can always, birds can always surprise you, but uh, you just never know. It's, you know, the old adage of, well, birds are where you find them. Yes. Yeah. That was, (laughs) that was the other one from your, from your recent article on quail about, right. And that gets said about grouse, you know, grouse are where you find them, which is, it's kind of a, it's it's sort of the 
blanket statement that really does play out. I mean, you never know where you might see a grouse. And your point in the article was, while that is true, you know, you never know where you're going to see an upland bird. You should that shouldn't stop you from asking why. Why is right. that bird here? What is what? Are, what are the surroundings? Right. Uh, you know, this uh, this past fall. I was on a hunt with a friend of mine, and uh, we, we flushed a covey of birds, and, and uh, uh, they flushed, and we, we, we didn't get to harvest any, but uh, I was kind of just sitting there, and he, he kind of walked up and said, well, are we going to move on, or what are you doing? And I, I kind of came back to reality and said, oh, sorry, I was kind of making some mental notes on, on, okay, well, why were these birds here? And then, you know, the more we looked around, it was it was a no brainer. It was literally the intersection of everything that they needed, uh, within about a a hundred yard radius. And, you know, after that, I'm I'm not surprised that there were birds there, but, but it's, it's, yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely where you find them, but I'm, I'm way too stubborn to just stop there. I got to (laughs) continue to say, okay, well, why, why is that? You know, can, can we figure it out? So yeah, well, I don't think a I don't think an upland hunter can really do too much observation. I think that's probably a good reminder. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the those you know those things are just they're right. The hardest ones to see are the ones that are right in front of your face. Sure. You know, sometimes, so yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about shotguns, but before we go there, let's see if we if there's anything else to say on the topic of journaling and hunting logs we kind of talked about that with your dog journal earlier Mm -hmm. are you do you keep logs of your hunts and if so why do you do it what do you get out of it yeah great question uh again the short answer is yeah sorta Um, (laughs) again i have to go back to uh i'm I'm very fortunate like i said my wife is a writer and a journalist so um you know this she does this for a living. Uh, so yes, a lot of that rubbed off on me. I, I, full disclosure, I am not, uh, the best hunting journalist, uh, around. I I don't journal as much as I should or as much as I want to. Um, I have no excuses. Uh, I'm not going to even give you a bad one. I just don't. Um, but I, uh, the one thing that I do, and this kind of crosses over into what we were just talking about in terms of that digital scouting is, uh, I, I use on X a lot and, and I, I make a heck of a lot of notes in that little note section. Okay. Um, you know, if you find some birds or you see an area, you know, I'm, I'll make some notes in there. So as much as I'd like to have a, you know, a, a nice hardbound uh, hunting journal, I, I don't, I mean, I'll take that back. I do. I'm, I'm looking at it right now in the corner of the, the room here, uh, but it's empty right now. So, yeah. um, but I do take a lot of, uh, of those notes and not just for, you know, for hunting purposes, but it's kind of nice to, you know, to just kind of note what was going on. And yeah, you can attach pictures to waypoints yeah. and yeah, Onyx has gotten really good with a lot of that stuff. It's, it's fantastic. It's definitely, it's changed the way that I kind of look at the, the journaling and the, the, the upland hunting and world. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a valuable tool, especially at least it is for me. Just because I haven't done any quail hunting and I, I have a real loose understanding. I mean, are if you're out quail hunting, if you flush a covey, are you dropping a waypoint and saying, I flushed a covey here or not necessarily? I do. I don't know okay. that ever, I don't know okay. that everybody does. Well, I, I um, do know that other people do, and I just was kinda curious as to like how widespread of a or how common practice that was. You know, I don't know. Uh like yeah. I said, I, I, I do and I and I know a handful of other folks that, that, that kinda do a similar thing. I'll even I'll try my best to do it even when we're pheasant hunting, you know, we 
flush, sure. a, flush a bird or two and I'll drop a pin. Um, sometimes I'll go back to those and sometimes I won't, or sometimes I'll kind of look at it from a, the kind of that perspective of, okay, well, why is that pin there? Why was that bird there? And, and yep. those kind of things. So yeah, I definitely try to do that uh, when I can or, or when the excitement dies down and you can remember to right. actually do it. That's right. my biggest deal, you know. <laughs> yeah. Covey after, of birds flush. After the, the barrel smoking and you've, you've safely determined that all the birds are still flying away. It, right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's time of reflection. and, and uh, Usually I'll mark something in my notes like, uh, missed an easy single here, you know, or something like that. But Yeah, uh, that's cool. Well, so you started with a single shot 410. What are you carrying today, Brad? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's probably like everyone else. I, I have a, a small gun safe that has, it has a few in it. Um, yep. My boys have a couple. and and But as far as what I'm shooting now, I, I kind of go back and forth between two shotguns. I have a, uh, a, a mid-60s uh, Browning Superposed over and under. Uh, and I, I really love that gun. And, and, uh, I also have a, a, uh, a Browning side by side, uh, 20 gauge, both 20 gauges. And so that's, oh, really? I, yeah, I kind of go back and forth between those. I read that in one of your articles, you mentioned the Browning side by side, and I was wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Does your, I've, I've, I've shot one of those, uh, BSS Browning side by side, mm-hmm. really nice guns. I brought one out to actually to South Dakota a few years ago when I was on a preserve hunt. I mm-hmm. they wanted you to have a twelve gauge, so I I didn't have one, so I borrowed right. it. Is your, yours is a twenty gauge? It is. Does it yep. have the? Tell me about what's the grip and the forend? Is it beaver tail forend? It's got the yeah the full beaver tail forend. Okay. It's got the pistol grip. Okay. Uh, it was one of the uh, you know, one of the first years that, that those were made. Of course, the, in Browning just made those for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, and you know I I tell people all the time it it it's it's not uh, one of the sleek you know foxes or LC Smiths that you see. It, it's if you had to compare it to anything, it, it's probably more comparable to a two by four than anything. But <laughs> gosh darn it, it 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 fits me well. Uh, yeah, and there's a little bit of a story behind it uh, for for me, and um, I just I like it. Uh, I matter yeah. of fact, two weeks ago I killed a couple of roosters with it, uh, and uh, it just it fits well, and and well, I, I, I just sus- like it. I mean, I suspect they're of a very high quality build. I mean, I'm sure yes. that you know they're kind of built like a tank. Um, they are. I've, yeah. I've never. I would love to hold a 20 gauge. I. I could tell you from everything I've heard and like what I hear other people say about them. I mean, they're very highly regarded. I, that's a, that's a really high quality side-by-side shotgun. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of, I don't necessarily say they're few and far between, but, but they kind of are now. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they, they point well for me anyway. And uh, I just, I like the way it feels and that's probably why more than more times than not, I pick it up if I'm yeah. if I'm going out. You know, you, you get confident with something and, and you yeah. get used to it. And, and so the like super it. the superpose over. I mean, yeah, that's another another really yeah. nice gun. Is that what grip do you have on that? Twenty six inch barrels. It has uh, it has twenty eight inch actually. Okay. Uh, yeah, improved cylinder on the bottom and modified on the top, and okay. uh, it's got the you know the regular lightning style grip prince of wales grip okay. on it yep. and yep. uh it's very lightweight points great i i, I like it a lot I, I you know i yeah. hunt everything with it from bobwhites to pheasants to chickens to ducks i mean i i shoot bismuth through it so i can shoot non-toxic and okay and uh it it just shoots well and and again just like you said those both of those 
Browning shotguns were made, they were made really well and yeah. they'll probably last me, my kids, their kids, their, their kids, you know, and, and everything else if they're hopefully taken care of. So. Right. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. Now nope. I, maybe I missed this in my excitement early on, but how did you acquire those two guns? <laughs> um, the, the, the side by side is a funny story. I, uh, when I was in college, I worked at a, uh, gun shop, sporting goods store. Okay, good. And, I wanted to get there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I worked at this gun shop and I had a good friend of mine that worked with me and, uh, you know, I was in college so we could work just part time. And, and, uh, I, I usually would get to work after class about maybe three in the afternoon and, and he would usually get there about one in the afternoon. He had earlier, earlier classes. And, uh, I got there one afternoon at three o'clock and I saw this Browning side by side and I'd kind of been coveting them for a while and uh i went over and kind of picked it up and one of the other guys that worked there said uh, you're too late kid uh, your buddy already bought it so <laughs> i thought well that's good cool. if anybody was going to get it i'm glad he sure. did so fast forward 20 some years later and that friend of mine is still a friend of mine a good friend of mine he uh shot me a text out of the blue one day and said hey remember that old Browning BSS, and I said, uh, "Yeah, I remember it. You stole it from me." So uh, he said, <laughs> At "Well, least you never I, let him forget it." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I said, uh, "He said, yeah. Well, I said, I, uh, you know, I've been thinking about selling it. I just got too many guns, which I don't know what that is, but anyway, he says he has too. He had too many guns, and he said, want to know if I would be interested in buying it.'" And I said, "Well, yeah, I was interested like 25 years ago, uh, but <laughs> you beat me to it." So, so long story short. Um, he and I got together and he sold me the shotgun that, uh, should have been mine in the first place if I would have just been smart enough to schedule yeah. my classes earlier in the day like he did. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of nice that, and we both knew, uh, the gentleman that, uh, that traded it in. Okay. Uh, so there's kind of a story, you know, going back there. So it's kind of a, yeah. it's kind of a, a, a legacy firearm, so to speak. But that's uh, cool. Yeah. Neat, neat story. And then the the other the over under was that a that one was just one that I just kind of found. Okay, um, yeah. I was banging around on the internet, not really looking for anything, and it just kind of, you know how sometimes those things kind yeah, of fall you weren't into looking your lap. for a gun, but <laughs> right, but, but it must have been looking for me. Sure. So uh, found it, and I I'd, I'd kind of wanted to superpose for quite a while. I'd shot a Satori for a long time, and and uh, just the. You know the nostalgia of, of yeah. the old superposed and that and that story and how those were developed. You know and and uh, so I yeah that one that one found me and found its way into the gun safe. So awesome. guilty as charged. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Uh, you did also recently write a review on another gun, the Beretta Explore, right? Correct. Yes. Yep. That one um, I did. That's actually I, that review was that. That's my oldest son's shotgun. Okay. Uh, I had one that was basically just like it uh, for you know, a few years, and, and I shot it, and excellent, excellent shotgun. And uh, my son picked it up, and we were shooting clays one day, and he really, really liked it. So uh, about the time that he was. Oh, a few years ago, when he was getting his hunter education certificate, uh, we uh, I traded in an old shotgun that I had and put a little money in on it, and uh, that was his uh, present for passing his hunter education and starting his hunting career. So that was the the one that I did the review on. That was actually that was actually his. Uh, is and, that a, was that a twenty gauge or a twelve? It is a twenty. It's a twenty. Uh, okay. Yep, yeah, it's a twenty. We I, we have one twelve gauge in the house, uh, and the rest are all. 
or all 20s. Um, I know I shoot about everything with a 20. The only 12 gauge I have in my house is uh, the old Browning A5 that belonged to my grandfather. So uh, and I hardly ever shoot it. Yeah. As I was kind of mentioning to you, I think before we hit record, I, there's something about those those bred A400s. Mm-hmm. They just I've I've been seeing a lot more of them lately, and folks are carrying them in the Chucker Hills and in the Uplands. And I've got one semi-auto that I I it's kind of my designated turkey gun now. But there's something about that gun. I just see like the wood on it looks good, and I just I want one. <laughs> yeah, they, they're great. That you know, they're yeah. everything that you want an Upland gun to be. They're lightweight. Yeah, uh, they're yep. reliable. Yep. Uh, they're really good looking. They 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 point nice. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, recoil wise, they're gas operated. Right. Yeah. They they they, do, they just don't have much recoil. So yeah, they soak it all up. They do. They're they're great shotguns. I I don't think I I don't have a bad thing to say about them. And I know my my son doesn't. He shoots it. So yeah, they're just good good guns. Yeah, we won't dive too deeply into the your grandpa's gun, but you did mm-hmm. you shared with me and it was a blog post that you wrote actually for in the Sage and Breaker website and put it over right. there and kind of talked about your grandpa's old A5 and had some pictures of it. That's a most folks are familiar with with those and the story behind those, but does it get out once a season or or hardly at all? Uh it it gets out once or twice a season. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um the uh, uh it's just they're, those things are, are just classics. My yeah. my grandfather bought two of those, uh, one for him and one for my dad, um, when oh, cool. uh, he came back from the, the service in World War II. And uh, I, I, I never, ever saw either him or my father shoot anything other than those two A5s. It didn't matter what they were hunting. Right. Pheasants, quail, ducks, cottontail, it doesn't matter. They were that, That's what they shot. And I don't know how many... I couldn't even wager a guess as to how many Covey Rises of Bob Whites those uh, shotguns have seen uh, right. in their days, but uh, I'd, I'd sure like to – I wish their stocks could talk. Yeah, I would imagine they've uh, they've seen a thing or two. Absolutely, yep. That's really cool. Well, shoot, man. So the so the season – what, are you – Couple more days, January thirty first. Season closes. That's it. Yeah, we're okay. we're down to the down to the wire. So uh, yeah. our our bird season and our our in my corner of the state, the the waterfowl season, okay, or duck season anyway, closes uh, on the thirty first. So uh, we're we're down to down to the bitter end, so to speak. And then the long wait begins. Do you have any Do you have any big off season plans with respect to dog training or shotgunning or anything like that? Uh, <laughs> From some of my shooting this year, I think one of my projects is going to be shooting a lot more clays. Uh, as you get a little bit older, you tend to not shoot as well, or at least I don't. So that's definitely on the uh, on the list. And and I have a, a laundry list of, of uh, habitat projects or enhancements over on the farm that some of them have been waiting a year or two, and some of them are just need to get done. And and uh, so so hopefully those will will come to fruition too this year. So. Excellent. I intend to join you in spirit out on the clay course. I'm going to hopefully spend a little bit more time there this year as well. Yeah, I think everybody can can benefit from a little more practice, especially sure. uh, especially as our our eyes get a little older and bodies get a little older and and uh, yeah. I just and the birds they seem to get faster, don't they? Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was. Gl- I'm glad you said that, so I didn't. I didn't have to admit it, Nick. But, yeah. um, but you're. <laughs> You're exactly right. They they tend to fly just a little bit faster. I don't know how that works, but some kind of weird physics or something. Evolution. There you go. There you go. You got it. 
Uh, that's awesome. If folks are interested in, I'll link a bunch of these articles in the show notes. Is yeah, going to Project Upland and looking up Brad. How do you pronounce your last name? Stefanoni. <laughs> Stefan. Yeah, you got it. Stefanoni. Right. It, it's pretty right. phonetic. Yeah, pr- uh, probably going to Project Upland and look up and, the author uh, name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there. That's probably the best way. And and uh, I I am I am trying to get better at my Instagram. Uh, and and uh, the keyword there is trying. Um, uh, I, I don't post as much as I should, uh, and I don't, uh, link as many of my articles to my Instagram as I should, but, uh, that's one of my, you asked about my goals. That's one of my goals for this year too. I'm going to, I'm going to do a better job of that. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to try. I'm going to do a better job of it. So well, how do people, how do people find you on Instagram? Uh, it's actually just, just my name at uh, Brad underscore, or actually I'll run together. Brad Stefanoni. Uh, okay. you can look on project Upland for the, the spelling of that. It's a, Yep, I'll find that and I'll put, yeah. I'll put that link in there as well too. Yep, you can. That's where they can find me. So excellent, Brad. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with myself and the listeners today and giving us a little Kansas Upland update and filling us in on what's going on in that part of the world, sharing some stories of your first Upland hunts and some of your guns and dogs. It was good stuff, man. I appreciate it. Oh, hey, thank you. But thanks uh, goes to you. I am, uh, like I told you before, I'm, I'm humbled to be a, a part of the podcast. I listen to it all the time and you have had some amazing guests and I'm humbled to be uh, one of those. So thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure, Brad. I appreciate it. And uh, I will, we'll keep in touch and definitely keep me posted on potential trip to Wisconsin. And Ab- I will uh, I'll have to get my I'm going to make it down to Kansas one of these. Well, I was just years. just going to say I know we kind of we kind of <laughs> talked about doing that this year and it yep. didn't didn't happen, but uh, definitely put that on your radar and uh, maybe we can meet up in uh, Kansas and do a combo of some bobwhites and some pheasants and depending on where we go, maybe even some prairie chickens. So. That sure sounds like fun to me, and this is the time of year where planning and you know dreaming about those trips it uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it keeps you going until uh, till next fall. That's right. (laughs) All right, Brad. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it and have a great weekend. Okay. Hey, thanks to you. Same to you. Thanks again, Nick. All right. Thanks for tuning into the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, Electronic Shooters Protection, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. 
Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundoggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.